Um, I'm going to start today with the, um, the parable of the city, which is on page five of your text. And um, this, I think, is one of the, uh, the primary uh, sources for the kind of secular approach that I'm taking to Buddhism. Suppose, monks, says the Buddha, a man wandering through a forest would see an ancient path, an ancient road travelled upon by people in the past. He would follow it and see an ancient city, an ancient capital that had been inhabited by people in the past with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Then that man would inform the king or a royal minister, Sire, know that while wandering through the forest I saw an ancient path. I followed it and saw an ancient city with parks, groves, ponds and ramparts, a delightful place. Renovate that city, sire. Then the king or royal minister would renovate that city and sometimes late, sometime later that city would become successful and prosperous, filled with people, attain to growth and expansion. So too, monks, I saw the ancient path, the ancient road travelled by the fully awakened ones of the past. And what is that ancient path, that ancient road? It is just this noble eightfold path. I followed that path, and by so doing I have known basically the Four Noble Truths and conditioned arising. Having known them directly, I've explained them to the monks, the nuns, the male and female lay followers. This good life, monks, has become successful and prosperous, extended, widespread, well proclaimed among gods and humans. Now, now I think what is um, particularly striking about this uh, parable is that it presents the goal of the Eightfold Path not as the ending of suffering, which is the standard view. The Noble Eightfold Path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Here we have the Eightfold Path that leads to an ancient city that the Buddha compares to conditioned arising and the Four Noble Truths. The Eightfold Path leads to the Four Noble Truths. Now, if you remember the first discourse, the, the turning of the Wheel of Dhamma, you get exactly the same sequence. The text begins by the Buddha announcing that he's found this Eightfold Path, and then he goes straight into the Four Noble Truths. Then, having defined each one, he explains how each is to be practiced and accomplished. And only having performed that task could the Buddha consider himself to be the Buddha, basically. Completely awake. Now, to me this is um, an affirmation 
that the Eightfold Path that the Buddha teaches is one that leads to a new kind of society on earth. The, the image of the ancient city is very much an image of this world. An image also of something that can only be achieved by people working together. He says, he, you know, he finds this place in the forest. He goes to the king or a royal minister and says, look, nowadays he would be part of a lobbying group in parliament. Or I suspect, since I think it's, it's rather unlikely that you could go to the New Zealand parliament and say, look, let's rebuild Buddhism. Nowadays, I think, in a more democratic society, this is a project that would be undertaken by people working together in probably some non-affiliate NGO-type style way. And the importance of that um, is to show once again that, the, that although this practice particularly when we emphasize meditation and mindfulness and awareness, is a very personal thing. And it's rooted in one's own innermost convictions and commitments in order to come to fruition, in order to be realized. It needs to be done within the context of a community, which again we looked at that yesterday, a sangha. It's not a solitary journey, but rather it is one that is nurtured by relationships with others. Now, of course, um, the, this project of rebuilding the city uh, is, is one that each of us, in a sense, is thereby involved in. And what I'd like to look at today is uh, the question of, well, who is this person who would do that? What kind of vision does the Buddha have of a person, of a self, that um, would be sufficiently unified in its purposes, uh, would be sufficiently uh, courageous, let's say, <coughs> to undertake such an endeavor, which is, in a way, I think this is how we might read the, the, uh, the parable today, about um, participating in the birth of another kind of culture. I hesitate to use the word civilization. That's rather grandiose. But ultimately, that's what the image of the city points to. It points to a, a new civitas, which is Latin for uh, city. And it's the root of our word civilization. A civilization is something that emerges out of cities. I mean, part of the problem we have today also is that the city has come to mean something very different in our time. In fact, often the city is seen as the locus of everything that can go wrong. It's where business, in a sense, proliferates in its destructive ways it's where power is concentrated. It's where deprivation, poverty, slums, inner city breakdown. But in the Buddha's time, that wasn't the experience at all. The Buddha was born at a period in Indian history when the first cities ever on the Indian subcontinent 
were beginning to arise. There were no cities um, in India more than a century or more before the Buddha himself. And when we say city here, we really mean a largish kind of town. And it's not accidental that the Buddha's uh, centers were, his main centers, were all within about half a mile of the major urban populations of North India at that time. In Rajagaha, where he has the bamboo grove, and in Savati or Shravasti, where he has the Jetas grove, a lot of his teaching was um, aimed at this new urban population, a burgeoning middle class, as it were, a mercantile class, <clears throat> professional class, people who were active in developing an urban economy and an urban civilization. To me, I think now we have to go beyond the, the old idea of a city. And I think perhaps the metaphor that best fits for us might be a kind of global community linked in a virtual sense. Um, that, I think, is emerging now as our new kind of uh, framework for a cooperative and a communal endeavor, uh, links which are, um, in a way, virtual rather than necessarily happening on the ground at some point. So we can envisage the emergence of a culture, perhaps even a civilization, that's no longer tied to the notion of the nation-state. So there's gen I think there really is here, if we, if we interpret this parable this way, uh, a move to a kind of global, uh, internationalized uh, Buddhist community, which is actually what's happening. I mean, where Martine and I are not... We don't, we don't have a center in France. We teach all over the world. And the people who are interested in our work um, we often just don't know where they live. They, all we know is they are at hotmail.com. <laughs> Sorry? Or Gmail. Or Gmail, yeah. But it's, it's no, their location is not um, of being in a, any recognisable physical place. I think that's significant. It has problems too. I certainly don't want to think that one could abandon getting lots of warm bodies in a single room. I think that's very important. But the actual, a lot of the communication and the discussion and the exploration of ideas does not have to now happen within the sort of city environment that the Buddha would have, have thought of. And I think all of this does very much raise the question of, of how, therefore, we can develop... Um, a positive conception of personal identity that is not in contradiction with the Buddhist idea of not-self. And we come back to your point, or another a couple of questions have come up here. Because there is, I think, a tendency in a lot of Buddhism to be very um, dismissive, if not act, outright denying, of the fact that there is actually anything substantial in the notion of personhood or individuality or self. And so I'd like to disabuse you of that idea, if you have it. <clears throat> Let's go to page 31. 
And here we have a very famous uh, dialogue between a wandering ascetic called Vachagota and the Buddha. And Vachagota says, how is it, Master Gautama? Is there a self? You know, the $64,000 question. The Buddha remains silent. Then Vachagota said, then how is it, Master Gautama? Is there no self? The Buddha again remained silent. Vachagota got up from his seat and went away. <laughs> Can't blame him really, can you? And then Ananda says to, I, I left this bit out, Ananda then says to the Buddha, well, why didn't you say something? And the Buddha says to Ananda, if I had answered, there is a self, this would have been siding with those who are eternalists, who believe in some sort of permanent, fixed, eternal soul, which would be the view of the, of the Brahmins, or, or most religious uh, believers, to be honest. But if I had answered there is no self, that would have been siding with those who are nihilists. Now, what this points to, and I think this is very, very central, not only to the Buddha's understanding of self, but the Buddha's understanding of anything, is that any kind of polarized conceptions, A or not A, are going to be inadequate to describing the living processes of what happens in life itself. You can't say the self is, because that suggests that there's something fixed there, but you can't say also that there is no such thing. It's... Um, that language of um, the Aristotelian logic, either A or not A, doesn't work when it comes particularly to trying to speak coherently about something that is a living process. Now the next passage uh, beneath here, which is spoken to Kachanagota, makes the same point, but in a rather more more philosophical way. And so Kachanagota asks the Buddha, what is right view? Or I've translated it as appropriate seeing. In what way is there appropriate seeing? And then we get this passage I looked at in answer to a question the other day. And there the Buddha says, this world, Kachayana, Kachana, for the most part, depends upon a duality, the notion of existence and the notion of non-existence, that there is a self or that there is not a self. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it is, with correct intelligence, with wisdom, there's no notion of non-existence in regard to the world. In other words, when, if you notice how things come about, which we do, then it's impossible to say there's nothing there. But... And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it is with correct intelligence, in other words, we notice that, yes, things come about, but inevitably they then disappear. There's no notion of existence in regard to the world. In other words, the duality that the Buddha, in a sense, goes beyond, although he doesn't use the word non-dual or non-duality, 
He simply points out to the fact that he teaches a middle way, a middle path, that avoids these two anta. Anta means uh, limit, or as I would translate it, dead ends. To say there is a self is a dead end because that leads us to what what Otti literally calls the dead end of eternalism. Everything becomes fixed, unchanging, rigid, disconnected. If you deny there's a self, then you'll slip into the dead end of nihilism, saying there is no person, nothing exists, nothing has any real meaning or truth or value. And the Buddha tries to find a middle path, both in terms of moral behavior, a middle path between the dead end of worldliness and the dead end of religion. And we can see here very clearly how this notion of the middle way goes, goes down deep. It has to do with, how, with, with our morals. It also has to do with our understanding of, uh, of who we are in a deep philosophical sense. And remember that it's this passage here, to Kachayana, that is the basis for Nagarjuna's philosophy of emptiness. Emptiness is the middle way, as Nagarjuna says, or repeats really, between being and non-being. It's not some state, some absolute reality somewhere beyond the world. It's just a way of talking about finding this middle way. And Nagarjuna says somewhere else, um, the Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of views. Believers in emptiness are incurable. Now, if you really think there's something called emptiness, then you're really in a mess. Because emptiness is precisely this um, way of being, this way of flourishing, this letting go of either the extreme of is or the extreme of is not, either the extreme of being or not being, existence or non-existence. And of course what I think is perhaps not uh, so obvious is that this is a way of talking about life unfolding, unfolding life. And again, many of the analyses of emptiness in later Madhyamika thought have to do with an analysis of, 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 of plant life. I spent many years studying about seeds and sprouts. <laughs> I'm not going to get into that now, but it is a reflect. It is a, It shows that the, there was a great deal of meditation upon how a plant comes about. What's the relationship between the seed and the plant? Can you say they're the same? Can you say they're different? No, neither category works. You can't, there's no cut-off point where you can say at this point the seed stops and at this point the sprout begins. There's just a seamless unfolding. And so again, it's not surprising that Nagarjuna um, makes the, uh, considers emptiness to be synonymous with conditioned arising. Paticca samupada, shunyata are synonymous. Very, very important point. And I think Nagarjuna clarifies this not as a development of what the Buddha was saying, but actually he's getting back to what the Buddha was saying. 
Now, if we, ret- if we now go to um, page 28, then, um, then I think we find another very key passage, um, which is from the Dharmapada, which is a very well-known text. I'm sure most of you have read it, or are at least aware of it. It's about 420 four-line verses. Um, very probably a quite an early collection. And on verse 80, you find the following statement. Just as a farmer irrigates a field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, so the sage, or the pundita, the pundit, the wise person, tames the self. Now, here again, we have um, a very unambiguous um, recognition of the existence of the self. Or, I use the word existence cautiously. Of the, of the happening of a self. And when you... So the Buddha... This is the same word self, atta, as we find in an-atta, not-self. And this is why it gets confusing. Particularly confusing when you translate anatta as no-self. That's clearly going into an extreme view that the Buddha himself rejects, as we've seen with the, 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 the Vachagota dialogue. Is there a self? No. Is there no, is there no self? No. That, I feel, has to be our starting point. And I think, unfortunately, particularly in Orthodox Theravada Buddhism, they've tended, well, they haven't tended, they have slipped into the extreme of there being no self. And they say there's no, there's, there isn't a self, there's just the five aggregates. There's body, mind, feelings, emotions, perceptions, inclinations, consciousness, all these impersonal processes, but there's no self. A friend of mine once wrote an article, The Light's On, But Nobody's Home, <laughs> which is a very clever title. But unfortunately, I think it misses the point. Um, and that's often the view you get. And it's often presented as this is what the Buddha taught. I don't think the Buddha did teach this at all. And we've got, we've got passages here which show quite clearly another way, which I think is a lot more subtle, a lot more difficult to understand, than this idea that the Brahmins taught there was a self and the Buddha said there was no self. It doesn't quite break down as simply as that. And as we see in a passage like this, the Buddha is quite clearly using the word self in a non-problematic way. He's not saying there is a real fixed eternal self, no. Nor is he saying that there's no self at all. He's talking about the self as a living ongoing, unfolding process. And the images he gives to describe this are really, again, very clear. Just as a farmer irrigates his field, the Buddha therefore compares the self to a field, which is, again, a very earthy, living... You can't think of a more, in a sense, more... um, an image that, of a place where we grow food 
um, a place where something can be nurtured and cultivated. And of course, the, the implication is that much of our lives, or ma many people's lives, are like barren fields that haven't been irrigated. I, I really do feel that, that the, most, the most powerful, or some of the most powerful teachings the Buddha gives are given through metaphor and parable. Uh, and the, the great advantage of metaphor and parable, and of course we find the same also in the Gospels, is that um, they evoke an imaginative response. We all know what a field is. We all know what it means to irrigate a field. And that allows us to imagine what that means in terms of who we are. To what extent am I like a field? A field that needs to be irrigated. To what extent is my practice of the Eightfold Path like irrigating a field? Now that's, to me, a much richer kind of language than a doctrinal account, which, again, all religions tend to start with metaphor and end up with dogma, like there is no self. There are only the five aggregates. Very dry, very dogmatic. But here we have living metaphor. So the Buddha is talking about the taming of the self or the cultivating of the self as similar to the farmers irrigating a field. And when you irrigate something, what you do is you carve channels into a dried up, piece of unproductive soil. And by letting the water in, you then uh, create the conditions to be able to plant seeds and grow crops or grow trees, which is a very affirmative um, image of how the Buddha's practice or the Eightfold Path is about enabling us to grow, enabling us to flourish, to get out of a kind of barrenness in which we feel, you know, we, 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 we feel bored, we feel depressed, we feel cut off, we feel alienated, we feel that nothing much is happening in my life. And so the Eightfold Path is like a process of irrigation, the, the cultivation of, a way, of this way of looking at the world, of motivating ourselves, of speaking, of acting, of working, all of this is like, if we practice it, digging channels in the field of our bodies, our minds, our emotions, our views. And this, of course, is exactly the word the Buddha uses when he describes the task that's connected to the fourth noble truth. Remember, the first truth, dukkha, is to be fully known. Second truth, craving, to be let go of. Third truth, stopping of craving, to be experienced. Fourth truth, eightfold path, is to be cultivated. Now the word he uses is bhavana. I think I mentioned this yesterday. Bhavana. Bhavana is rooted in the word bhava, which means being. And, in fact, uh, it's rooted, 
Bhava is rooted in the Sanskrit Bur, which is actually a cognate, in other words, it's a common, has a common root with the English word be, Bur, be, same, same Indo-Aryan root. So Bhavana means to bring something into being, to allow something into being, which is, of course, what we mean when we say we cultivate something. We bring it into being, something that didn't exist, namely, let's say, a crop of wheat, is brought into being by irrigating a field, you know, protecting the crop, doing all the things you need for something that didn't exist to now come into being. Of course, the other analogy we might uh, consider here is that this is also a creative process. After all, to create something is to bring something into being. You start with a blank canvas and then you make some marks on it and you bring a painting, perhaps even a work of art, into being. So there's something about this practice that involves creativity. It's not just about following what somebody says and just following it to the letter. As we saw yesterday, it's not about a moral life that's just about following the Buddhist rule book, but it's about being creative in your response to human dilemmas, risking doing something. You don't know the outcome. You try to respond as creatively as you can, as compassionately as you can, as wisely as you can, but in both cases, in all those cases, you're, you're doing something new. You're changing the situation, hopefully for the better. So, again, we spoke before of how art um, can open up the world for us in, 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 in revealing the, the, the existential condition of, of, of life. It's through people's creativity. And I think, likewise, our own practice is a kind of creative process. And the raw materials for it are our body, our feelings, our perceptions, our choices, our inclinations, our consciousness. All of that becomes the, the clay, if you wish, of how we sculpt and fashion our own lives. And again, if you look at the last of these images, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood. Just as a fletcher fashions an arrow. What's interesting about these images is that uh, they're each quite distinct from the other. Um, the the second, second one, fashioning an arrow, is basically taking disparate um, elements, piece of wood, metal point, feathers in the end, what are called the fletch, and shaping them and forming them so that you can then direct that arrow, if it's well made, unerringly onto its target. Now this is an image, I think, for, um, for fashioning a life that is directed and focused and unified. That's the key word, unified. See, I think one of the great crises of modernity 
is that we have lost, particularly when we have lost trust or faith in our ancestral religious traditions, we've also lost a sense of our life being governed or being, as it were, shaped into a unity. Uh, we've lost what Aristotle would have called a sense of telos. Telos means an inner aim of life. And instead, uh, we've become fragmented. And I think it's, a, it's almost a truism to say that you know, the, the modern person, the modern individual, who's got the freedom for all these sorts of choices, basically has to cut their life up into different roles. You can be, you know, you can be a good business person, you can be a good parent, you can be a good educator, you can be a good member of the territorial army. You, but, some, but very often, we don't have as it were, a unified sense of our, of our, of our, uh, of our human being. And this, is, I think, is what religion, uh, in a sense, is trying to provide. Uh, a, a, a vision of a total life that is unified and focused, within which, yes, we perform different tasks, but all of those tasks are held together by a a meta vision of a unified life focused towards uh, some kind of goal that transcends us and that transcends each of those individual identities that we might have. I mean, it's so common nowadays, uh, you know, to, to meet people, say, who've had a very successful career and they've totally identified with being the CEO of a company or whatever. And when they come to retire, their life just falls apart that they've got nothing else really to replace that sense of purpose and unity that they had. And so they dream of you know, spending their time collecting butterflies or going on cruises. But they very often find that their lives become empty, unfocused, without purpose. And I suspect all of us can relate to that at some level. And so unemployment becomes a big crisis, not only because we may thereby not have enough money, but also, I think, at a deeper level, because we lose our sense of who we are. We lose a sense of identity. We lose a sense of, of respect within society. And yet the people whom I find the most inspiring in human history from all traditions, not, not certainly just Buddhist, are people who transcend those particular identities and achieve a kind of a fullness, and they live a very total human life. So this, I think, is what the Buddha is saying here, is that um, by irrigating the field of our life, we allow ourselves to flourish, we allow, we allow ourselves to, 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 to give forth fruit. And again, remember, the, if you tease this image out, further still, uh, the fruit or the, 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 the harvest of a field is not just for you. It's something that feeds your community. It's something you do for others. A carpenter shaping a piece of wood. Again, starting out with something that's just, you know, ju just a hunk of wood that has no particular value, no particular um, purpose, and yet by shaping it, you give it value and you give it purpose. It becomes, let's say, 
a complex joint in a piece of timber that will support the roof of a house. Or it becomes a bowl in which you can keep fruit or eat and drink from. Or it becomes um, a wooden Buddha image, if you like, or a Virgin Mary. In other words, it is transformed from being just a block of wood into something that um, now has a meaning and value and purpose within uh, the world, not just for ourselves, but for others. So, so many of these uh, images, I find, are terribly rich. And it's worthwhile, I think. This is a very simple verse, four lines. In fact, funnily enough, I probably read it a dozen times. So I read through the Dhammapada. I'd never really noticed it, actually. In fact, I only really noticed it when it was given as an exercise in my book, Pali for Dummies. And um, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a language exercise. And what struck me, being a bit, a bit of a language nerd, was that the word utter was in the accusative singular, atanam. Atanam dhammati pandita. The pandita, dhammatis, tames, again, same cognate with the English word tame, atanam, the self, accusative, the direct object of the verb. Whereas in pretty much every translation, it won't say that. It'll say, the sage tames himself. Now, in a language nerd uh, point of view. That means that the object of the verb has been translated as a reflexive function of the verb and thereby losing actually what the text says because Buddhists don't like the word self. So they disguise it. The sage tames himself. It's, it's correct, but in English... Self is no longer in the accusative form. It's become a reflexive function of the verb. I mean, this is a very good example, although it's a bit technical, of how translation can so easily distort, sometimes in very subtle ways like this. So... Um, <clears throat> uh, I think if we put these passages together, the Kachayana Gota passage, the Vachagota passage, these dialogues we started out with, is how self is not something nor nothing, neither exists nor does not exist, and then recognizing that that way of, of, of being and experiencing things is what underpins the way of experiencing conditioned arising as a process of life. And the self, therefore, is an ongoing project. This is the point. The Buddha's, when the Buddha says not self, what he's pointing to is not that the self doesn't exist, but there's nothing within our experience that is fixed, nothing we can point to and say, that's what I really am but rather these apparently impersonal processes when acted upon and when practiced can lead to the unfolding of a life. 
Um, and so the self, therefore, is um, an unfinished project. It's a project to be realized. There's no thing called self. Self, in that sense, we might describe as a bit like a narrative. This is, again, an idea from modern philosophy. The narrative conception of self. That we are like a story. And again, that's how we actually present ourselves to one another. If you meet someone you don't know, and you get, to, you know, you, you, you feel in a, a sort of affinity with them, then how do you get to know each other? You basically trade stories. You say, oh, when I was young, I went to this school. Really, did you? Well, I went to the one down the road. And then I went to India. When I, really? Oh, well, I went off to South America. And, and you just get, the more story you know about a person, the more intimate you become with them. And getting to know one another, getting to be friends, getting to have a relationship, is all about the trading of stories. And of course, as you are trading your stories, you're also creating another one. You, you, the, the, you, that exchange of narrative is also a narrative. It's also a story. We are ongoing stories. And, of course, we're also, we're the writer of the story. We're the, we're, we're the hero of the story, or sometimes the villain. And, and we don't quite know where it's going. It's up to us to, uh, to keep telling the story. The st it's like, like a novel. A good novel is one in which you can't put it, you can't put it down because you want to know what's going to happen next. A bad novel is a, is a story where you actually don't care what happens next. <laughs> it means that somehow the, 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 the narrative is not really working. You haven't, uh, the book hasn't achieved, as it were, any sense of suspense or plot. So again, if we take that Im image, I feel that the challenge really is to, um, is to, is, 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 is to, to make our own lives into compelling stories. Of course, people often think their stories are terribly interesting, and so they write these, they write these first-person, you know, slightly disguised autobiographies in the form of novels, and usually then get rather disappointed when nobody else finds them interesting. So, again, that points to the fact that, in a way, what one aspires for is one's life to become a really good novel. I'm just going to go now through... Oh, actually, I think another section... Since we're talking about self-reliance, I think it's worth going to um, page 39. Um, and here we have a passage... I've written it out at length, which um, is, again, I feel, one of the, uh, the ur-text of... Um, a secular approach to Buddhism. This is a passage, it starts, but Ananda, what does the order of monks expect from me? This is um, a, w something the Buddha said in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, the, the great discourse on the passing, the Buddha's last days. And here, um, the Buddha has suffered a very severe illness, probably a terminal illness, um, 
some one scholar who's actually a former doctor, he's now a bhikkhu in Sri Lanka, uh, believes that the Buddha suffered what's called an intestinal infarction during his last reigns at um, Veshali. And, and he didn't actually die from poisoned food, but the poisoned food actually um, uh, triggered a final, um, uh, or the in a sense, irritated, I don't know the medical terms, th this infarction he probably already had. It means a disruption of the intestine. It was quite a common way people died in those days. And so the Buddha recovers from that, but he's very weak. He realizes he's going to die. And um, Ananda comes to him and says, oh, I'm so glad you lived. I've been praying for you to live. It's marvelous. And I, 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 I knew you'd go... I, I knew you would live because you haven't yet made your final statement to the monks. And the Buddha says, but Ananda, what does the order of monks expect of me? I've taught the Dharma, Ananda, making no distinction between inner and outer. Now that is usually understood as, I don't have some secret teaching for the initiated and some outer teaching for the public. I've simply said what I know. The Tathagata has no teacher's fist in respect of doctrines. In other words, I'm not holding on to anything. I'm not holding some, some last advice back from you. This is, again, this is very much a, a critique of the idea of, um, of the guru who holds back special esoteric teachings for the most privileged students. And th this becomes a kind of a you know, a bait, you know, to sort of really get people to be devoted to you because you've got this really secret tantra or something that you're going to hand on. A Buddha clearly has no time for that kind of thing at all. If anyone who thinks, if, anyone, if, if there's anyone who thinks, I'll take charge of the order, or the order should refer to me, then, then let that person make some statement about the order. But the Tathagata, which means I, don't think in those terms. So why should I make a statement about the order? Ananda, I am old, worn out. One who has traversed life's path. I've reached the term of life, which is 80. Just as an old cart is made to go by being held together by straps, so my body is kept going by being strapped up. It's only when I withdraw my attention from outer signs and by the cessation of certain feelings, entering into the signless concentration of mind, that my body knows comfort. In other words, only when I get into a deep state of meditative absorption can I feel any kind of contentment at all. Therefore, Ananda, you should live with oneself as an island, oneself as a refuge, with no other refuge, with the Dharma as an island, the Dharma as a refuge with no other refuge. Now this, I think, is, is um, a very, very clear. I mean, this is not the only place where the Buddha says that. There's two or three other occasions, but all sort of towards the end of his life. Now here you get, again, curiously, the word utter, self, which again, is, it's... 
it's, it's like, you don't you miss that in the tran most translations which say something like be an island unto yourself the Pali is atta deeper viharati atta self deeper island viharati you should live in plural you should live he's not just speaking to Ananda this is the uh, second person plural vu as opposed to tu Atasarana, self-refuge, Anyana sarana, no other refuge. The Pali is very, very, uh, um, say very bitty in a way. There's very few connecting uh, words. Dharma deeper, Dharma island, Dharma sarana, Dharma refuge, Anyana sarana, no other refuge. Now, the point which I think is important here is, again, some people take be an island unto yourself as a kind of, um, uh, kind of a, an affirmation of sort of do your own thing. Uh, that's not true. That's not what it means at all. Because the Buddha clearly recognizes that when he's using self, he's also implying Dhamma. There are two refuges, which are one essentially, the self and the Dhamma, which means that when the chips are down, and if we look at this passage in the context, this is when the Buddha is basically abandoned at the end of his life. There's hardly anyone with him. He's on the road. He's trying to get back to his homeland, which at that time had probably just suffered from ethnic cleansing. Uh, Sakya was destroyed at the end of the Buddha's life. He tries to get help. No one gives him help, so he then goes back. He falls sick. He's on the road, and eventually he dies at Kusinara, or Kushinagar. So things are not looking great, to put it mildly. His world is descending into war and violence. His patrons have, been either, have either died or have been murdered. It's, it's a tough time. So... Here he's saying, look, in the end, when, when things are really tough, the only thing you can rely upon is your own integration of the Dharma in your own life. That's actually the only refuge there is. He doesn't say rely on the Sangha. And he certainly doesn't say rely on the Buddha. The Buddha's dying. All you can rely upon is the Dhamma. I remember a prayer we used to read out at, uh, before meals when I was a Tibetan Buddhist monk, that describes the Dharma as kyat ngu, which means the true refuge, the real. Ngu, ngu means like real or true or authentic refuge. The kyat ngu. The Dharma, the, the Buddha is dead. The Sangha, for whatever reason, might have dispersed. You might be alone in a prison cell, in a Chinese gulag or whatever. And at that point, what refuge do you have? You have only have the Dhamma, and again, not just as a bunch of ideas you've memorized, but as something that you have integrated into your own life. So this really, I feel, is the passage that underscores most uh, poignantly the importance of self-reliance. 
It doesn't mean that self-reliance has to do with just abandoning community. But in the end, if the community has gone and you're on your own, let's say when you're about to die, for example, as the Buddha is here, you're on your own. You can be surrounded by all your friends. You can have a million monks chanting prayers beside you, but you're on your own. There's no way around that, I'm afraid. Only you can do your dying for you. So this, I think, is, 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 a, is a very, very um, important point. And then, then the Buddha goes on and says, well, how, how do you live like that with, with yourself and the Dharma as a refuge? Here, Ananda, a monk abides contemplating the body as body, earnestly, clearly aware mindful and having put aside all hankering and fretting for the world and likewise with regard to feelings, mind and dhamma. And those who now in my time or afterwards live in this way, they will become the highest if they are desirous of learning. They will reach fulfilment. I think might be a better way of translating that. The Pali is a little difficult to interpret. So what does he say? He comes back to mindfulness. The practice of the foundations of mindfulness. That is how you live as an island. You live with the Dhamma as an island and the two together as a refuge. I think we have a very, very uh, unambiguous synopsis of what the Buddha regards as essential. The Dhamma, we've already seen, is equivalent to the conditioned arising. Mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness, is in a way how we integrate that insight into our lives by paying attention to our body, our feelings, our mental states, and to the five aggregates, the totality of our experience, of our situation. And then, as the Satipatthana Sutta the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness concludes the whole of the training of mindfulness culminates in, you'll be surprised to learn, the Four Noble Truths. So you have in this passage basically um, a synopsis of what I presented as the foundations of a secular Buddhism. Condition arising, Four Noble Truths, mindfulness, and self-reliance. They're all, they're all in that last paragraph. Either implicitly or explicitly. Well, I don't think I can say much more after that. So I will leave that here today. Um, tomorrow I won't be giving a talk, but I will... Um, uh, try to bring some of these threads together by looking at some other, another parable that we find in here. But uh, that's enough for today. And I hope that um, as we go through the rest of this day, we can reflect on some of these ideas, maybe reflect on, on what these four principles I've been speaking of mean to us, not in an abstract way, but in a practical way. And then we'll meet back again at um, quarter to 11 for, 
for the SIS. 